The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. The text for today's sermon comes from Philippians 3, verses 12 through 16. Again, that's Philippians 3, verses 12 through 16. Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Let's pray together. Father, as we hear your words in Philippians 3, please teach us, reprove us, correct us, and train us in righteousness so that we will be equipped for every good work. Amen. Well, not everyone can be a special warfare operator in the Navy SEALs. SEAL stands for Sea, Air, Land Teams in the United States Navy. And you may have to make it through over a year of elite testing and training just to become one. First, you have to make it through eight weeks of Naval Special Warfare Preparatory School. And then 24 weeks of BUDS training. BUDS stands for Basic Underwater Demolition for SEALs. So three weeks of orientation, seven weeks of physical conditioning, seven weeks of combat diving, seven weeks of land warfare, and then three weeks of parachute jump school, and then 26 weeks of SEAL qualification training, so more advanced tactical training. And if you graduate from that, then you earn a Navy SEAL Trident and get assigned to a SEAL team at Coronado, California, or Little Creek, Virginia, and you begin your advanced training for your first deployment. I have a Christian friend who is a a Navy SEAL. He's been serving that way for the past 10 years, and I emailed him this week and asked him if what I just told you was accurate, and here's how he replied. Yeah, that, that generally looks correct. Throughout the years, they've added or subtracted a week to the various phases, but it has oscillated around those timelines since I've been in. I might add that regular Navy boot camp precedes all the other training, and it's not the type of hardship many expect, even though it's easier than what they're expecting later. Most people aspiring to become a SEAL initially think they've made a horrible mistake when they get to boot camp. It's tedious, monotonous, silly, and has little to, do, little to no relevance to what they joined for. The unexpectedness and inglorious nature of it are challenging for some people, especially compared to what they're aspiring to. Now, all that to say, to successfully become a Navy SEAL requires sacrifice and single-mindedness. And this illustrates a principle. If you want to achieve an unusually difficult goal, you must sacrifice and be single-minded. In other words, you have to have a goal, and you have to press on toward that goal. And that's what our passage is about. Let's read it one more time. Philippians 3, 12 to 16. 
Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. So the main idea of this passage, see it in these words right in the middle, press on toward the goal. That's the main idea of this passage, press on toward the goal. So the title of this sermon is, it's very creative, press on toward the goal. (laughs) Press on toward the goal. Now, according to verse 15, we as a church must share Paul's mindset. So I'm going to summarize Paul's argument throughout this sermon saying we, first person plural, rather than I, first person singular. So let's work through this passage by answering five questions. Be one for each verse. So question one is why must we press on toward the goal? And then number two, how must we press on toward the goal? And then three, What is the goal that we must press on toward specifically? Four, who must have this mindset about pressing on toward the goal? And then question five, what must we do as we press on toward that goal? Let's begin with question one. Why must we press on toward the goal? And Paul gives two reasons in verse 12. He says, not that I have already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. So that first line is the first reason he gives. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. Now, when he says this, not that I have already obtained this, what does that refer to? You've got to look at the previous sentence in verse 11. He says that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So when Paul says in the very next sentence, not that I have already obtained this, this refers to the resurrection from the dead. And the next phrase in verse 12 clarifies this, or am already perfect. So the resurrection from the dead and being perfect are two ways of referring to us in our glorified bodies when we no longer sin. Are we there yet? No, we're not there yet. We haven't reached that goal yet. We haven't arrived. We're not perfect. We still sin. We're not at the finish line yet. The race is not over, so we must press on. That's the first reason that we must press on toward the goal. We haven't reached the goal yet. The second reason is in the second half of verse 12. It says, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. And again, when he says, to make it my own, it refers to the same thing as the word this. It's the resurrection from the dead. Paul says he presses on toward that goal. And press on, I press on, that translates, interestingly, the same word that verse 6 translates a persecutor of the church. Persecutor translates the same word, press on. So before God saved Paul, Paul single-mindedly pressed on to persecute God's church, Christ's church. 
And now that God has saved Paul, Paul single-mindedly presses on to the resurrection from the dead. Why? Well, he, he explains that he presses on towards that goal because Christ Jesus has made me his own. When did that happen for Paul? When Paul was on the road to Damascus, Christ took hold of Paul and made Paul his own. You can read about it in Acts 9 and 22 and 26. Now, our conversions weren't on the road to Damascus like Paul, but the principle is true for us, brothers and sisters. Christ first pursued and possessed us, so we must press on toward the goal. So the answer to question one, why must we press on toward the goal, is because we haven't reached the goal yet. That's his first reason. And second, because Christ Jesus has already pursued and possessed us. That's why we do this. Question number two, how? How must we press on toward the goal? And the answer is verse 13. Let's read verse 13. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, comma, and I'm going to stop right there. <laughs> so hang on to the sentence. Uh, when he says, I do not consider that I have made it my own. It refers to the same thing as the previous it and this. He's talking about the resurrection from the dead. In other words, Paul says, I haven't reached the goal yet, but I am single-mindedly focused on reaching the goal. Now, I just use the phrase single-mindedly. Can you guess what my warrant is for saying single-mindedly in verse 13? It's that middle phrase, but one thing I do. The Net Bible translates that phrase, I am single-minded. That's good. The NLT translates it, I focus on this one thing. This one thing I do. So what is that one thing we do and, and how must we focus on it? I'm going to focus on the how right now because that's what the next phrase is doing. How must we single-mindedly focus on reaching that goal? And there are two connected ways which are like two sides of the same coin, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. So let's consider each of those ways, which I'll summarize by saying we press on by single-mindedly forgetting what lies behind and by single-mindedly straining forward to what lies ahead. So let's first just think about what it means to forget what lies behind. What does that mean? When Paul says in verse 13 that he forgets what lies behind, does that mean that he forgets everything in the past? Everything. Well, it can't mean that because earlier in this letter, just a few paragraphs back, verses 4 to 6, Paul presents reasons that he could be confident in his past fleshly accomplishments. So he's remembering the past right here. So it, in some sense, Paul's remembering what lies behind. He doesn't forget everything. He doesn't completely fail to remember it. So there must be another sense in which he forgets what lies behind. Here's how I, I would put it. To forget what lies behind, in this sense, means you don't focus on it. it means you don't pay much attention to it. You don't boast in it. You don't focus on it and then and value it in such a way that leads you to conclude Wow, look at that. Look what I did. The race is over. I can kick back and relax. Nice job, Andy. 
Like that kind of thinking is what Paul is condemning here. It's possible and good to look back in an edifying way, to learn from it, to thank God for his grace in the past. But the past is not your focus or your identity. It's not who you are. And this includes your past life before you became a Christian, like what Paul writes about in verses 4 to 6. And this especially includes your past life as a Christian, the good progress you've made as a Christian. Here's an illustration. This past summer, some of my family climbed to the Sacagawea Peak in Montana with some of the dots. So we started a trailhead uh, near the top of the mountain, and I think we climbed about 2,000 feet after that. And when you're climbing a mountain, you can get discouraged at how far away the summit is, especially when it's very steep. And it can be encouraging to briefly look back at how far you've come. That can spur you on to keep climbing to the summit. But looking back is counterproductive if you're just admiring what you've done with sinful pride or you're despairing that you still have so far to go. Or here's another illustration. When I think about the folly of focusing on what lies behind, I think of a middle-aged man who's a bit out of shape and who loves to talk about his great athletic achievements in high school. (laughs) The pinnacle of his success as an athlete. And everyone around him knows all about it. Now, it's it's fine for an older man to tell stories about that, uh, especially to your children and grandchildren. I'm I guess I'm a middle-aged man now, and I'm about to tell you a story about my high school athletic career in a moment. Um, So I think it can be done. But it's, it's just sad when a grown man's identity is his high school athletic career. It's like he didn't grow up. He's immature. Focusing on the past like that can distract you from making progress now. So we must press on toward the goal by single-mindedly forgetting what lies behind. If something in the past hinders us from obeying Christ right now, we must forget it. Don't focus on that. That's one side of the coin, single-mindedly forgetting what lies behind. Now, let's consider the other side of the coin, straining forward to what lies ahead. One of our joys as Christians is to please God by obeying him. God works in us, Paul says early in this letter, both to will and to work, what's the next line, for his good pleasure. We please God when we obey him. Later in this letter, Paul thanks the Philippians for sending him a financial gift, which he calls a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. In another letter, Paul writes, we must walk in a way that's fully pleasing to God. We please the Lord when we obey him. So here are just two practical examples of what this might look like for children and for fathers. Paul commands in Colossians 3, children, obey your parents in everything. Remember why, why you should do this? For this pleases the Lord. So children... Are you obeying your parents in everything? That's part of what it means for you to run the Christian race right now. Obey your parents in everything. One of the ways you run the Christian race right now in a way that pleases the Lord is to obey your parents. That's how you run your race. Fathers, 
Paul commands, don't provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So fathers, are you provoking your children to anger? One of the ways that you run your Christian race is to consistently love your children by disciplining them in a way that does not provoke them to anger. One of the ways you run the Christian race is to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, to enculturate your children with a Christian worldview that values God's words and God's world in accord with reality. Fathers, that's part of what it means for you to single-mindedly strain forward to what lies ahead. That's how you run your race. Now, I do not enjoy running. I, I know some people who do. I'm not one of them. I don't like sprinting, and I don't like distance running. I just don't like running. I, I ran the mile on my high school track team my junior year in Boston, and I joined the team mainly as a way to discipline my body and force myself to do hard things. And I I wasn't very good, so I have nothing to brag about here. Uh, I never won the mile-long race at a track meet. I couldn't even break a five-minute mile, which guarantees you will never win. Uh, So I did learn some lessons that I can share in a sermon, though. So here are some lessons I learned from all that track running that uh, translate to life. So when you're running a race, here's seven practical tips. When you're running a race, it doesn't help to, number one, focus on what's behind you. A good runner doesn't stare at what's behind. You can't run as fast as you can possibly run if you're uh, twisting around and staring backwards while you're trying to go forwards. Or, or worse, if you turn 180 degrees and you start backpedaling. That's the recipe for tripping. At minimum, when you look backwards, you, you lose your rhythm and you slow up a bit. Uh, there was a, an NFL playoff game yesterday where one of the cornerbacks was covering a wide receiver, and when the ball was in the air, the cornerback turn to locate the ball. And when he turned, that's when the receiver got a step on him, got ahead of him, created distance, and then caught the ball for a 50-yard touchdown. When you, when you turn around, you don't go as fast. So that's number one. Folk, don't focus on what's behind you. Number two, when running a race, it doesn't help to be proud about how quickly you have run thus far. When that happens, you're tempted to ease up, to make it easier for others to pass you. Number three, when running a race, it doesn't help to be depressed about how slowly you have run thus far. Now, oh, woe is me. I'm such a slow runner. I, I'm embarrassed to even be in this race. Well, that kind of mindset is a self-fulfilling prophecy to lose. Number four, it doesn't help to wander off course. So if you're running a race around a, a football track and the wise thing to do is to stay in the lane closest to the field, not the outer lanes. Definitely don't meander up into the stands to hang out with your friends or over to the concession stand to buy popcorn. No, you've got to not wander off course. Stay on course until you finish the race. Number five, it doesn't help to weigh yourself down. So I I went through an unusual phase in high school when I always wore five-pound ankle weights under my jeans. I know, I'm weird. Uh, I, I thought it would help me for track and cross country. I'm not sure how smart that was, but I, I wasn't foolish enough to keep them on during the race. I took them off for the race. You don't want unnecessary weights to slow you down while you're running a race. And number six, it doesn't help to have a low 
discomfort threshold. There's a saying, no pain, no gain. If you stop exerting effort whenever you become a little bit uncomfortable, then you'll be a terrible runner. In verse 13, those words straining forward translate a word that means to exert oneself to the uttermost. Stretch out, strain. You can't exert yourself to the uttermost without feeling uncomfortable. So the goal in a race is not ease. The goal in a race is to cross the finish line and win. And finally, number seven, it doesn't help to focus on stuff other than reaching your goal. When you're running a race, it doesn't help if you look down and you stare at your feet. It doesn't help if you stare at the crowd watching. It doesn't help if you start daydreaming. It doesn't help if you're preoccupied with other pressing matters in life and you you forget that you're in a race at all. When you're in a race, you should focus on the race, specifically focus on what's left in the race. Focus on finishing strong. Give it everything you've got. Give it your maximum effort. Finish well. Focus on the finish line with tunnel vision. Don't get distracted. Don't let off the gas pedal. Don't coast. Don't focus on what you've accomplished thus far. Run. And what I'm saying applies to every Christian from the youngest child who's a follower of Christ to the oldest saint who's about to cross the finish line. Focus on what's left. We must press on toward the goal by single-mindedly forgetting what lies behind and by straining forward to what lies ahead. As Christians, we do not rest on what we've accomplished thus far. And whatever we have accomplished, it's all by God's grace anyway, right? So why would we boast in that? If we look to the past, it's to remember that God is faithful. What we must not do is dwell on the past in a way that distracts us from making progress now. So run, finish strong, persevere. We want to finish this race so that we can say with Paul, he writes this in 2 Timothy 4, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. And I imagine him saying that fist pumping as he crosses the finish line. That's how he want to finish. So that's the answer to question two. How must we press on toward the goal? By single-mindedly forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. Now, question three. What is the goal that we must press on toward? I mentioned the title of the sermon to my daughters this week, and one of them said, press on toward the goal. What's the goal? Here we go. Let's, Let's get very specific here. Verse 14. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. What does that mean? That's a very challenging phrase to translate. What exactly is that prize? Well, it's the resurrection from the dead. We know that much from earlier in the passage and all that goes with that, including reaching the state of sinless perfection. Let me show you how some other translations render this. So ESV is the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The NIV says the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. So the prize of the upward call of God, that's a a way to explain what of the upward call of God means. 
or the CSB says the prize, promised by God's heavenly call. Another way to explain that phrase, of the upward call of God. Promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. NLT explains the sense a little bit more freely. The heavenly prize for which God, through Christ Jesus, is calling us. So those are all helpful translations. Helps you get the sense of, of what Paul's saying here. Philippians 3, 20 and 21, later in our passage, clarifies what this goal is. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body. That's what we're pressing on toward. And when will we reach this finish line? Well, it'll be after we die or when Christ returns, if that occurs first. The prize is what God's upward call promises. Our future glorification so that we'll be like Christ. God's call is upward or heavenly in the sense of Colossians 3 when Paul says, if then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above where Christ is, uh, not on things on earth. So the prize is that God finally saves us from the presence of sin and he gives us resurrection bodies with the Lord in his presence. And that is a goal worth single-mindedly sacrificing for, isn't it? That's the goal we should press on towards. The goal is our future glorification or our future sanctification. Uh, There are three tenses of sanctification in the Bible, uh, past, present, and future. So when you think of past sanctification, it's definitive or positional, and it occurs when God gives you the gift of faith and repentance, uh, conversion, when you're justified. Present sanctification we call progressive. That's typically what we think of as shorthand for sanctification. And then future sanctification is perfect, complete, or final sanctification, what theologians typically call glorification. So I could say, I am or I have been sanctified. I am being presently sanctified. And I will be sanctified, past, present, future. So in the past, God sets a Christian apart from sin's penalty and their old self or old man in Adam. In the present, God gradually sets a Christian apart from sin's power and practice. And in the future, God sets a Christian apart from sin's very presence and possibility. So I would say it like this. God has saved me from the penalty of sin. That's past. Right now in the present, God is saving me from the power of sin. But I still sin now, right? I, I'm pressing on towards the goal, but as I do that, I'm not working for my salvation. I'm working out my salvation. Remember what Paul writes in Philippians 2, 12 and 13? It says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who works in you. So think of it this way. God works in, I work out. I don't work for. So that's present. And then future, one day, God will save me from the very presence of sin. That's the prize. That's the goal. That's a goal that ultimately satisfies us with with God himself because God made us for God. This final column here, the future column, that's our goal. 
Now, sadly, most people chase lesser goals. Most people chase goals that do not ultimately satisfy. And even if you reach those lesser goals, they leave you feeling empty. For example, the goal of many professional football players is to win a Super Bowl. Not everyone wins a Super Bowl. It's hard enough just to become a professional football player, let alone win a Super Bowl. And uh, that's something that I think every Vikings fan understands, right? Uh, One of my fellow elders told me today, I've been a fan for 50 years. Uh, I'll not tell you what else he said, but uh, uh, does winning a Super Bowl ultimately satisfy you as a football player, as a fan? Well, let's consider the case of the most decorated professional football player of all time, Tom Brady. He also happens to be my favorite football player. Before you jump on me for being on a bandwagon, let's say I lived in Michigan from 1992 to 94, and I was following the university when he was their quarterback. He played for them from 95 to 99. I've been following his career since. That guy's an amazing football player. Uh, I think it's uncontroversial to say that Tom Brady is the most successful quarterback in NFL history. Uh, he has started in 10 Super Bowls. He's won the Super Bowl seven times. Why am I telling you this? This is why. In 2005, after he won just his third Super Bowl, 60 Minutes interviewed him. Here's part of what he said. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life. Me, I think, it's got to be more than this. I mean, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. I mean, I've done it. I'm 27, and what else is there for me? And the interviewer says, what's the answer? And Tom Brady says, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. I mean, I think that's part of me trying to go out and experience other things. I love playing football, and I love being a quarterback for this team. But at the same time, I think there's a lot of other parts about me that I'm trying to find. I know that what ultimately makes me happy are family and friends and positive relationships with great people. I think I get more out of that than anything. And that's sad on many levels. One reason is that he... Divorced again this last year. So I I enjoy watching Tom Brady play football because he's a football genius. But I pray that he will find what ultimately satisfies God himself. There is one ultimate prize that is worth pressing on toward with everything you have. And it's the prize that Paul highlights in our passage. The prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Anything else is a lesser goal that will not satisfy ultimately. In contrast to Tom Brady, consider John Tipton. You've probably never heard of John Tipton. He didn't play in the NFL. My wife calls him Uncle John, even though he's not technically her uncle. He faithfully served God for many decades in his church in South Carolina, mostly behind the scenes caring for his church's building, meeting all kinds of practical needs, especially caring for older folks in the church. He encouraged others by highlighting specific evidences of God's grace, like what Pastor Sam does so much here. He even did some premarital counseling for Jenny and me about 20 years ago. Now, when my family was in South Carolina last year, 
John Tipton finished his race at age 77. And shortly before he died, he told my father-in-law, I'm just sitting here waiting for the bus. So he was ready and eager to meet the Lord. He didn't waste his life on weak pleasures. Now, C.S. Lewis wrote about how our pleasures can be too weak. That's so good, I'm going to show it to you. He said, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. What does Lewis mean by that? He says, we are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. And he goes on to say the promises of Scripture may very roughly be reduced to five heads. It's promised, firstly, that we shall be with Christ. Secondly, that we shall be like Him. And our passage emphasizes both of those. Thirdly, with an enormous wealth of imagery, that we shall have glory. Fourthly, that we shall in some sense be fed or feasted or entertained. And finally, that we shall have some sort of official position in the universe, ruling cities, judging angels, being pillars of God's temple. Lewis is right. We are far too easily pleased. We're tempted to press on toward goals that do not ultimately satisfy us. The goal that we should be single-mindedly pressing on toward is the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The prize is that God finally saves us from the presence of sin and gives us resurrection bodies in His presence. God made us for God. So that's question three. What's the goal? The prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now question four. Who must have this mindset about pressing on toward the goal? And the answer is in verse 15. Paul writes, Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Now before I jump into verse 15, we just note that some English translations begin verse 15 with the word therefore. Maybe you have a translation that starts with the word therefore. The NASB, CSB, Net Bible have that. Why is that? That's because the Greek text begins with the word that we typically translate as therefore. I'm not sure why the ESV and the NIV don't translate therefore here, but here's, here's the logic. Because verses 12 to 14 are true, therefore Verse 15 follows. There's supposed to be three dots. Therefore. Okay? So, because verses 12 to 14 are true, we should have this mindset about pressing on toward the goal. And Paul specifies two groups of people who should have this mindset. First group, let those of us who are mature think this way. First line of verse 15. The idea here is similar to 1 Corinthians 14.20, where Paul writes, Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. 
Our goal is to be mature in Christ, Colossians 1.28. So that's the first group of people. And the other, second half of verse 15 mentions, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Those who are spiritually immature must also have this mindset. And Paul is confident that in due course, God will make that clear to the rest as well. So we could answer verse, uh, the question four, who must have this mindset? Both the spiritually mature and immature must have this mindset. And now finally, question five, what must we do as we press on toward the goal? And the answer is in verse 16. Let's read verse 16. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Hold true to what we have attained. What have we attained? Well, it starts with back at verses 8 and 9. We've gained Christ and we're found in Him because we have the righteousness from God, justification through faith. And then all the progress we've made past that point, that's what we've attained. I like how the, uh, no, the NLT translates verse 16. It says, we must hold on to the progress we've already made. We must hold on to the progress we have already made. That's good. In other words, don't lose ground. Don't go backwards. Live consistently in line with the truth that you've already received. So the answer to verse, uh, the question in verse 16, what must we do? Hold on to the progress we've already made. If you're running a race, don't go backwards. Don't lose ground as you press on. If you're climbing a mountain, don't slide down the mountainside. Maintain your ground as you climb upwards. If you're climbing a rope, don't slip down the rope. Maintain your gains as you pull upwards. Hold on to the progress you've already made. After God rescued the Israelites from the Egyptian slavery in the Exodus, some of the Israelites in the wilderness grumbled and complained that they had it better back in Egypt. They wanted to go backwards. They wanted to lose ground. But God brought them into the promised land, some of them. After Peter betrayed Jesus three times, he returned to fishing. He went backwards, but Jesus brought him back to lead God's church. Don't follow their example of losing ground. Don't go backwards. Press on. But if you do lose ground, if you do go backwards, remember Proverbs twenty four sixteen: the godly may trip seven times, but they will get up again. Psalm 37, 24, though they stumble, they will, never, they will never fall, for the Lord holds them by the hand. That's encouraging. Now, as we conclude this sermon, I'd like to address two groups of people. First group is those who do not follow Christ. Maybe you're wondering, I don't think I'm even in this race you're talking about. I don't think I'm following Christ as my king. If that's you, friend, I implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, God made Christ to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. So if you have questions about that, if you have questions about following Christ, I invite you to talk to any of the members of our church. We would love to do that. You might think, feel kind of awkward to talk to someone about you know, sin and God's wrath and God's love through Christ. We don't think it's awkward. We love it. 
That's why we're all here, what brings us together. People from different socioeconomic groups, different ethnicities, different ages, different hobbies. We have one thing in common, and it's that, and we love to talk about it. And after this service concludes, we'll have people up front who would love to talk to you and pray with you. So I encourage you to do that. Second group of people, finally, I'd like to address is those who are already following Christ. Those who are already in this race that Paul describes in Philippians 3. Now, I began this sermon by telling you how difficult it is to become a Navy SEAL. It requires sacrifice and single-mindedness. And that illustrates the principle that if you want to achieve an unusually difficult goal, you must sacrifice and be single-minded. You must press on toward the goal. That's the mindset that Christians must have. So I exhort you, on the basis of what God says in Philippians 3, brothers and sisters, sacrifice and be single-minded as you press on toward the goal, the finish line when you will be like Christ. Press on. Press on toward the goal. And you might be tempted to make excuses. Maybe you're thinking, I'm, I'm not an elite runner spiritually. I'm just average or maybe below average. And I, I don't think I can possibly run any faster than I'm already running. So let me reply to uh, an objection like that. God calls you to run your race. Your race. The race he's designed particularly for you. He didn't call you to run someone else's race. And you're not competing with fellow brothers and sisters This isn't a competition. We're a team. We're family. We're not competing against each other. And God designed your race just for you, taking into account all your circumstances, all the ways he's gifted you. And are you you sure about that, that you think you couldn't possibly run any faster, that you couldn't possibly run with any greater focus and effort? Let me tell you a story about that. My favorite book in C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia is The Horse and His Boy. I don't have time to set the scene here, but you all know the story, right? So I'll just refresh your memory. Uh, there's an exciting part of the story when two Narnian war horses are running ahead of an evil invading army. Lewis makes this comment as the narrator. Certainly, both horses were doing if not all they could, all they thought they could, which is not quite the same thing. And then a lion suddenly begins to chase them. And these horses are terrified of lions, particularly this lion, which has chased them before. And Lewis describes the warhorse named Bree. His eyes gleamed red. His ears lay flat back on his skull. And Bree now discovered that he had not really been going as fast, not quite as fast as he could. Shasta, the writer, felt the change at once. Now they were really going all out. Now I share that story with you to encourage you that running as fast as you think you can run is probably not the same thing as running as fast as you can run. So brothers and sisters, God calls us to press on toward the goal. I'm emphasizing that because that's what our passage is about. That's what our passage 
emphasizes. That's the main point of this text, press on toward the goal. But one more comment about that. Don't forget that earlier in the same letters, this is part of the literary context of Philippians, earlier in this very same letter, Paul writes this, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You could paraphrase that as press on toward the goal. And then he gives a reason. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So take heart. God enables you to press on toward the goal. God enables you to finish the course. God will enable you to finish, to cross that finish line and hear him say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. So press on toward the goal. Let's pray. Father, thank you that Christ Jesus has made us his own. Would you please give us grace to focus on one thing? Please help us to press on toward the goal. Help us do that by forgetting what lies behind and by straining forward to what lies ahead. We long for Jesus to come back and for you to give us glorified bodies that are free from sin and sickness until we reach that finish line. Please enable us to press on toward the goal. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.